death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death?, Dr. Pema continues his explanation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and how we can apply some of the techniques to our daily lives as a way of living our best life as well as preparing for when death comes. Pema tells us more about impermanence, rebirth, and the type of meditation encouraged by Padmasambhava, the author of this profound and ancient book. Dr. Pema explains how this information and these techniques can be utilized by anyone, anytime. So let's continue hearing from Dr. Pema. You spoke early on also about impermanence. So where does that sit in the in terms of the teachings in the Tibetan Book of the Dead? It's the heart of it because death is essentially, you know, the marker of impermanence for human beings. It's the big messenger of impermanence. The really interesting thing about impermanence is that impermanence also, when we look at at things and we have taken impermanence to heart, literally when we look at them with our eyes, we see them. If we've taken impermanence to heart, we don't see permanent things when we look. We don't see permanent things when we hear. We don't taste permanent things. We're seeing, hearing, and tasting and touching impermanent things there's never a moment in our experience if we really take impermanence to heart that we're mistaking impermanent things for permanent things it's all and then that state of immediately understanding the impermanence of things as when we sense them means that there's no attachment it's not possible to be attached to a thing that you know you can't hold can you give an example about so when you say when you when you understand this, you don't, you know, what you see, what you hear, you see as impermanent. What do you mean by that? Mostly when we look at things, we see them as permanent. So our senses construct a fabrication or a mirage or a, a hallucination of permanence. But when we actually start to contemplate impermanence, take impermanence to heart, really understand it, and we combine it with our sitting meditation. That's really important. Whenever we contemplate something like impermanence, we have to combine it with our sitting meditation. Otherwise, it stays in their head. But if you combine it with your sitting meditation, then it comes down into the heart and it becomes a felt experience. It's it's not easy to explain it with words, but it's like the senses no longer a priori see things as permanent they see them as they are, as impermanent. So that means that because you're seeing things as impermanent, you don't grasp as much and you don't also fear as much. It's very difficult to be afraid of something that you know is completely impermanent. It, we, we're fear, we are afraid of permanent things because 
like for example, if we have pain, we, if we interpret that as permanent, it can be much more distressing. But if we have pain and we understand and we feel that it's impermanent, we're not less distressed. So, so do you mean like things that seem to be, uh, if you look at, like if you look at a mountain range, that mountain range looks like it's not changing, but it's actually changing every single moment. Yeah. Is, is that what you mean? Millions it's, of micro changes. Yes. It's well it, it means that you know the it means that the mind that believes in the permanence of things is no longer there. And so the senses and that and that brain experience of permanence, they're no longer collaborating to f- fabricate it. You've undone one side of that equation. So you know you have you have a mind that believes in imp- impermanent in in permanence. And you have senses that construct an experience of permanence. But once you undo the idea of permanence, then the senses are no longer being sort of driven by that. And so then you're starting to actually, when you perceive things, it's hard to explain, but you kind of feel their impermanence. You, you don't need to actually even see evidence of it. You feel it. You feel the impermanence of things. So, and it's very, very, very difficult to be, angry about the loss of something when you when you know in your heart you feel in your heart you were destined to lose it there was no way of holding on to it and so likewise with pain and things like that when you experiencing pain and you've got a very strong sense of permanence and I I have chronic pain myself so it's kind of something that's close to home so when you're feeling that as permanent it has a very different quality but when you recognize that it's impermanence and you're feeling it from that understanding or that knowledge of impermanence, you feel in the pain, not like a monolithic pain, but little waves of sensations that have come together to create that pain experience. And so you see now kind of like it as a kind of like a dance of energy, which isn't pleasant. Let's not pretend it's pleasant, but you see it as like a dance of energy with sort of peaks and troughs and that is very much unstable. So your experience of it is very different and there's no way to kind of be really distressed about that when you see, oh, this is completely impermanent. And although I might have this pain again, even in the same day, this will pass. So it could help, this book could also help, for example, the people who are, going to experience the loss so the people who are left behind and are and are grieving yeah if we really understand impermanence and we really accept dying and death but also have some meditation experience and can see oh there's a part of of experience that doesn't come together and come apart that can be very reassuring but you need to have both so this idea that you know i think sometimes this idea that oh, there's a part of experience that doesn't come together so it doesn't come apart, so we're all undying, can be used as a Band-Aid. Because suffering still suffering. It still hurts. Loss is still painful. So you need both. You need impermanence. That's the kind of the truth of our reality. But you also understand that, oh, even though this being that I am will die and all the beings that I know will die, there is actually something that transcends these beings that persists and that is good it has as its only qualities joy love compassion and evenness or warmth or contentment you know 
So I think that's very reassuring. But we can't just have the honey. We need also to recognize the truth of our natures. We are impermanent beings. We will not get out of here alive. <laughs> yeah. We will die. But what persists is something we can really take refuge in, whether we're Buddhist or Christian or Jewish or whatever, we can really take refuge in that. And even if we have no faith at all, if we sit in meditation, we can see, oh, these Buddhists are not making this up. <laughs> it's true. There it is. Part of the process of this book is is rebirth. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about that. Uh, in this tradition, what does it mean by rebirth and how does that relate to some of the practices that you've spoken about so far, but also how we can prepare to to maybe try and influence, you know, what our rebirth might be. Mm. So even in Buddhism, there are differences of opinion and whole different schools of thought around rebirth. So the first differences in different philosophical or schools of Buddhism, the first things that were the points of difference were around rebirth and then around karma. So this is so this is important to get. So there's many kinds of Buddhism. At the moment we have this dominant four. The Theravada tradition in South Asia, the Mahayana tradition in sort of North and Eastern Asia and Tibet, and the Vajrayana tradition in sort of Tibet, Mongolia, etc. etc. And then we have Dzogchen or Mahamudra and Mahamudra, which is sometimes folded in with the Vajrayana tradition, but actually is quite different. So these are the kind of dominant streams. But Within them, there's a lot of diversity. So there's all this diversity in Buddhism. And where the main differences come from are differing opinions about what the Buddha meant by what he said about karma, what he said about rebirth. So that's where these differences in schools arise. So we have to be okay about there being differences, you know, in these ideas. So what I'm presenting is like my position, but everyone needs to find the position or the philosophical view that they feel comfortable with, that they can believe. Because the Buddha said this himself. Measure it against your own reason, not someone else's reason, not the inherited tradition that you've been given, but against your own reason. Measure this against your own reason and find the thing that you're comfortable with. The only thing he said about rebirth that he wouldn't accept as a view was that there was none at all. So the nihilist view that death is death is death is death and there's nothing else. That's the only thing the Buddha outright rejected. So he said that there was something that persisted. And in our tradition, we consider that to be like what we call a continuum of mind, but it's not what we would call the person. It's almost like the um, in the in the old tantric and Mahayana texts, they talk about it being like the perfume of the person persists. And then that perfume or very subtlest, most subtle flavor of the person's habits and actions, so what they did, not who they thought they were or how they felt, but what they did, they that persists, that moves forward as a continuum of mind. It's very, very subtle. It's not a person because all this stuff about I am this, that, and the other is gone at that level. But the actions we commit, with body, speech, and mind, it's what flavors this continuum. 
So the things that we do are what flavor it. And then it moves forward. And around that is born a new being. So in science, there's the idea that the brain forms and the mind somehow arises. They, they still don't know how. They've got no idea how. Um, but in the Buddhist tradition, we go, well, actually, no, that's around the wrong way. The mind, this very subtle continuum of mind is there and around it a new life forms. So that's our view. So it's really the condensed essence of your actions that come forward. That's all. So the metaphor I like to use is like a stone being dropped in a pond. The stone is us, what we call our self, our personhood. That just sinks to the bottom. But the ripples move forward. The action that we committed, the stuff that we did, that moves forward and, and literally makes the universe. The future is made by our behavior. All of the beings that come out come as a result of our behavior, what we call our descendant beings, the beings that arise as a result of what we do from that continuum of mind, they rely on us to not mess it up. So, so we have to kind of always live very ethically, um, with, live with joy, live with love, live with compassion, live with evenness, treat all beings the same, with the same fairness, same compassion, same love, same kindness. And then if we do that, then those ripples that move out and create new beings they will be little love bombs, you know, and the beings that will be born will find it natural to be kind and they'll have less trouble in the world. Beings who are naturally angry, have a sort of angry disposition, they have more trouble in the world, you know, because all the beings around them react negatively to them. So beings who are more kind of joyful, loving, compassionate, even, another way of saying even is like relaxed, they will have a better existence. Beings who are really sort of angry, hateful, hurtful, jealous, envious, greedy, they will have a very poor time of it because everyone around them, every being around them, even animals, animals, sorry, <laughs> will not like them. Mm. You know, one of my teachers, Kamrupshe, said once, oh, you can really see, like, even animals don't like an angry person. It's really true. You know, so it's it's about living a life of ethics, so being and by that, I don't mean any kind of like complicated thing. It just means to be kind and compassionate and fair, but also to kind of be joyful, to enjoy what you have, to enjoy the success of others as well, to bring joy. So like these things are very simple. They don't require us to have any particular faith. We can be of any faith to do these things. But they really will totally transform not only our experience in this life, but our experience of dying and any future rebirth. If we miss that opportunity to be totally free, any future rebirth will be one that's like quite okay. But the ultimate game for Buddhists is to become enlightened. So we really, really want to try for that union with the mother luminosity so that we can be free. Union with, Buddha, union with Buddha nature so we really can be free. It's kind of a, in the Vado teaching, it's a unique way to call Buddha nature, which is like this term, mother luminosity, very unique to, the, to these Nyingma school, ancient school teachings, very unique to them. And the reason for that is the mother that they're pointing to is emptiness, out of which all things rise. Emptiness meaning the fact that everything is fluid, everything is dynamic, everything is 
uh, interconnected, codependent, et cetera, et cetera, and of course, ultimately non-dual, out of which everything sort of rises. So if we are really kind of like live a simple life, simply joyful, simply loving, simply compassionate or kind, simply sort of fair and even, then that's enough. Add in some basic meditation. None of these things require us to be Buddhists. Then there's a real opportunity of freedom at the end. I mean, it really is what you're describing, just a way of living our best life as human beings and how to recognise that, that we are not independent. Mm, I think so. And think about, I think the thing about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, which is really is for professionals, you know, ritual specialists, people who are performing funerals and who are caring for the dead and dying, you can actually take out of it a kind of user-friendly, everyday person kind of essence of the advice and the instructions. And it's really very simple. It's not really complicated at all. And the only thing, and the thing that I find really reassuring about that is that when you take out all of that complicated professional information, which is just for the people performing death rituals, and you look at the sim- the, what's left, it's also very simple and accessible. It's all very, very easy. It's not cost. You don't need to go somewhere and be taught for hundreds of dollars how to do this. It's simple meditation. Meditation teachings are pretty much free. They're pretty much universal across all Buddhist traditions. You just simply meditate, combine that with sort of some joy and some love and some compassion and recognize the kind of fabricated nature of our perception. And that's it. It's not very complicated at all. And so your book, very applicable to what the Tibetan Book of the Dead explains. Yes, I've taken out all of, I've left out all of the professional specialist information in my commentary on it. And I've zeroed in on the things that we can do. So for me, the most important thing about those teachings is that there's this profound opportunity for freedom. And I think for Western readers and practitioners, that often that profound opportunity is lost in all this very Tibetan iconography and language and practices, and also the kind of very specialised nature of it. It's, it's not a book for everyday punters, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that is. So what I wanted to do was make a book for everyday people that had the core practices that you could pick up you don't have to pick up all of them. You just can pick up one. And that way you've got essentially a very simple thing you can do. Doesn't cost any money to do it. Doesn't require huge amounts of training. It just means it just requires a bit of commitment on one's own part to sort of do these things each day, these very simple things each day. And then your life becomes geared towards liberation. Whether we're, while we're alive, if, that, if we're lucky enough, or well, actually it's not about luck at all, it's about if we are determined enough, or in the process of dying, which is the last opportunity we have in this life. But also, interestingly, it's the easiest option. To become enlightened while we're alive is quite difficult because we're always doing this, doing that, going here, going there. Oh, I've got other things to do, which bamboozles me because I'm like, what's more important than your actual freedom? When we're dying, all that taken away from us without our choice. We can't hang on to any of it. And then the opportunity is just there, bare and bald and just waiting. And it's very easy to grasp in that state because the distractions are gone, our attachments and aversions are gone, our ignorance 
hopefully is mostly gone and we can just grasp it and we can be free. That opportunity is profound. And anyone with even, I mean, I think if you do half an hour or so of meditation a day, that's enough to get you to the point where you can recognize this moment as it dawns after you've passed away, but before you were born and you can simply lean into it. And when, you know, people talk about, oh, what does this mean to sort of, to grasp it, to merge with that mother luminosity? What does that mean? It simply means to open your heart to it, to meet it with love. This is not hard. So it doesn't require any real expert knowledge to meet an experience with love. Just think about when you meet your favorite baby. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's like that. Mm. Very easy. So when you say half an hour of meditation a day, what does that mean? It means the meditation form originally and traditionally taught by the Buddha. So these teachings come from a sutra called the Wisdom of the Time of Death Sutra, which is not a Vajrayana thing. It's a Mahayana thing. So not from Tibet. It's from India. And it comes in the set of sutras that also includes teachings about meditation. And there are obviously other sutras that talk about meditation that are earlier in terms of their, you know, when they were written down. But this particular practice is really paired back simple meditation, which means sit in a comfortable position. The person, the um, Padmasambhava who took Buddhism to Tibet, who wrote the Tibetan Book of the Dead, he says in another set of teachings um, to Yeshi Sogyo, who became the first woman to become enlightened in recorded history, he said to her, whatever meditation posture feels best is best. So anything that's comfortable, so long as the back's basically straight, is fine. Then he said, with the speech, no need for mantras, no need for prayers, no need for anything, just be mute. So just be silent. And then he said, with the mind, no need for any visualization. He also said about the man, in the mantra bit, no need for any breathing exercises, no need for any complicated, forceful stuff. You know, so he's saying you don't need any of these complicated yogic practices. You just need to sit still and be quiet. And then he said with the mind, no need for any projecting. So no need for any visualizations, no need for any, any kind of playing or doing with the mind at all. So no visualizations, no projecting or trying to draw anything to oneself. Just leave the mind simply as it is. So just let it be what it wants, which doesn't mean to leave it completely out of control. (laughs) It means to be aware of how it is. Simply be aware of how the mind is and just leave it alone. Be aware of it as it is. And then you just sit and you can place your awareness, which is a very wise move at the beginning, on your breathing. Or if you like to sit with your eyes open, which is actually in this set of teachings encouraged, you can look at like a... You can put a crystal in front of you or a stone or a pebble or an image that you find inspiring. Like if you're a Buddhist, a picture of the Buddha. If you're a Christian, a picture of Christ or Mary. If you're Hindu, you can have a statue of Ganesha, whatever you want. You know, whatever you feel is kind of inspiring or whatever. You just place your gaze on that image and then you place your awareness gently on your breathing. And then whatever kind of distractions happen, and they will, of course, happen, you let them come and you let them go. And you just keep... You just simply maintain awareness of what's happening. It's no force. The metaphor used to describe 
how one's awareness should be when it's on its object, so on the breathing or on something one's looking at, it's described as like a snowflake, snowflake landing on a lake. Completely gentle and then vanishes this, it's just completely gentle. You know, or another one that I've heard is a bee landing on a flower. Very, very gentle. Or sunlight on dew is another one that's traditionally taught. It's just very, very gentle, this awareness. We have no force, no sternness, no strictness, very relaxed, and just be aware of what's happening. And in our tradition, we do short periods of meditation and then a break. And the break is as important as the meditation itself, because in the break, you bring your gentle awareness into whatever you do in the break. So you have a glass of water, you stretch, you adjust your posture, you you refresh your gaze by looking out the window, whatever you choose to do in the break, you bring your awareness to that and it needs to be a shortish break so that one does a, one is able to actually maintain one's awareness in the break. So you can start with like 10 minutes, a break of, you know, a minute and then another 10 minutes, break of a minute or two, then another 10 minutes. So it's very low stress and easy. But, you know, to start with, just do that, you know, start with just 10 minutes broken in the middle. You can also simply be in anywhere at all and just put your awareness on your breathing and just remember, in my nature, I am the same as the Buddha, as are all sentient beings. Just click into it for a second, a minute. It's quite beautiful. If you had to summarise in 60 seconds, how you think... (laughs) How you think the, you know, the guidelines and the teachings in the Tibetan Book of the Dead can benefit us, whether we are in life or close to death? How would you do that? I think they can help us to be free of the things that torment us, such as, you know, our fears, but also our yearnings that always go unfulfilled because they can't be fulfilled our desires that can never be met. So they really free us of that misery and we become more even and relaxed. And then the other thing is, and in, and also we become obviously more joyful, more loving, more compassionate, and those are not unpleasant states. Those are very pleasant states. So while we're alive, we can simply become happier, more relaxed, and we can let go of the things that frighten us and disturb us. And we can let go also of the things that we always seem to be chasing that we can never achieve. In our culture, capitalism drives us to want more and more and more and more and to be anxious about what we don't have and to be anxious about who we are so that we want more and more and more and more and more. These teachings can really help to unravel that. So we just start to be content. And then fundamentally, though, ultimately, you can be totally free. No more miserable rebirth. You become enlightened. There's no greater promise than that. Indeed not. (laughs) Indeed not. All right. Well, the book is called Luminous Awareness, a guidebook to natural awakening in life and death. Um, We'll have a link to that on the page that's connected to the the podcast. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Pamela. It's been absolutely wonderful. I could go on and on and on. I've already taken you so much of your time, but I really appreciate it. And it's a very powerful book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So I think how you've written this this guidebook is really, really nice. And I hope uh, that it can benefit many, many people. Thank you, Sultram. And thank you for having me. I really enjoy these chats. I just think this it's so good for um, people to receive these podcasts that you do, because I think they're so helpful. Thank you. That's very kind. 
Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.